You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I want it. You probably think I'm beautiful, Dr. Roberts, but I'm not. I want it. My nose is 0.2 millimeters too narrow, and my cheekbones are 0.4 millimeters too high. I want it too. I do television commercials. They want a certain look. I did surgery on several girls a few months back, commercial actresses, and there have been some suicides. You don't know what's going on. This is more than commercials. They're killing all the girls that are perfect. DMI measured some girls for possible surgery. We were conducting an experiment. Hi, I'm Cindy. I'm the perfect female type, 18 to 25. Here you see a typical computer model being made. Hi, I'm Cindy. I'm the perfect female type, 18 to 25. What have you got me mixed up in? I have a right to know if somebody's trying to kill me. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also joining us this week is Marjorie Conrad. Hello, thank you for having me. This week we're discussing 1981's Looker, written and directed by Michael Crichton. The film stars Albert Finney as Dr. Larry Roberts, a plastic surgeon who has been getting some strange requests to make already beautiful models even more beautifuler. I mean, not fuller. You don't look fuller, but more more beautiful. <laughs> Unfortunately for him and his clients, these women who have come in with millimeter-specific requests to modify their bodies have been dying under mysterious circumstances, and Larry has been framed as the prime suspect. It's up to him and his one remaining living client, Cindy, played by Susan Day, to unravel the mystery of the murdered models. Heather, when was the first time you saw Looker, and what did you think? I remember seeing it in bits and pieces on TV when I was a kid, but my first time eventually getting to see the film as a whole creature was actually last night in preparation for tonight. I thought as a whole, it's good. There's some issues that I think keep it from being a great movie, but it's definitely an interesting film and and has some very interesting uh, satirical sort of commentary on the nature of uh, not only female beauty, but also advertising in general, as well as technology. I actually appreciated the silent film aspects of the film that he actually mentioned in his commentary, the large chunks of just visuals, his perception of dialogue is something that is similar to a special effects track. I mean, I I tend to favor um, minimalist dialogue and and visuals in films anyway. So I actually found that kind of a breath of fresh air and the slow pace as well. You were able to sort of lose yourself in it. And I wasn't expecting that. I think I saw this one, like you, Heather, first time probably on TV. It seems like this was kind of a a UHF staple, just something that I would turn on WKBD in the afternoon and see either the whole thing or bits and pieces. I just remember kind of revisiting this one back in the early 2000s and just being really impressed by the way that it's put together and 
having Albert Finney as this kind of action star, and I wouldn't necessarily pick Albert Finney as an action star. So I was uh, really happy with that. And then James Coburn, I think he is just such a superior villain that every time he's on screen, I am completely riveted. Oh, God, I know. Coburn, I'd, I'd actually, for some reason, had forgotten that he was in it until last night. And when his name popped up, I, I had like a little silent cheer. Because, I mean, James Coburn just, I mean, they don't make him like that anymore. And of course, you know, him combined with Albert Finney, you're talking two titans of acting. And Susan Day is great, too. I, I feel like I feel like all the main actors were like, this was a very well cast film. Everybody was kind of perfect for their role. I really like our main characters, and I really like the Mustache Man, as he's called <laughs> in the script. He's literally, literally called the Mustache Man. <laughs> yes, Tim Tim Rosovich, former NFL player Tim Rosovich, who has no lines whatsoever. Kind of tying into what you were saying, Marjorie. Our villain, our or our henchman, our main henchman. No dialogue whatsoever. And I love him as this menacing force. And I love those things like the, you talked about the long sequences without dialogue. And there are a lot of action sequences where you don't get that kind of superfluous dialogue. You don't get any of that, you know, I'm coming to get you, you son of a bitch or any of that kind of stuff. It is just, you know, just pure action. And I do like that Crichton knew how to handle that and just kind of used, uh, some of the dialogue to just kind of tie some things together that needed further explanation. But for the most part, you can watch a lot of this film silently and get so much out of it. The visuals are that rich. It's interesting how much danger he conveys, but I feel like the corporate figure, the corporate head is actually much more dangerous feeling than the henchman. But I also really love those action sequences when he's portraying um, loss, loss of consciousness, loss of awareness I thought those were really effective when he's staring at those screens and suddenly there's he's projected into the air. Yeah, I thought that was actually sort of modern in its depiction. So let's start breaking down the plot a little bit here. We start with a commercial, which I think is a really smart idea. You know, going back and reading the script, I think that was actually a last minute addition because the whole movie eventually becomes about commercials and we have this well, we have this amazing score by Barry Dvorzon going on, but we also have almost a commentary track of commercials happening at the same time where things that are happening on screen almost seem to be commented upon by the commercials that Albert Finney is running across, whether it's when he's in the car or he's uh, watching television or just kind of in the background, we have these TV commercials and radio commercials that are commenting on the action. So it's nice that we start off with this one commercial where it's this omnipotent voiceover character talking to this uh very beautiful woman and then it's nice that we go from her on tv to her in larry's office and she's the first one who's in there and kind of giving him her measurements and all of these things that are wrong with her and just this whole litany of things that need to be corrected down to the millimeter is just astounding you probably think i'm beautiful dr roberts but i'm not i have lots of defects to fix i have a list right here my nose is 0.2 millimeters too narrow and my cheekbones are 0.4 millimeters too high. And my chin has a little 0.1 bump here. And my areolar distance is 5 millimeters. And I have a mole here on my ribs. So I need plastic surgery. Though I have to say, sometimes I miss the idea of the transition of her being in there. And then it has to be 
many weeks later that we kind of carry on with the rest of the story because sometimes it feels like it just moves really quickly into now we were into the action kind of thing. Yeah. You can tell that there were problems that Crichton was having with the studio. Cause I know that um, I read his original intention was this was going to be more of a, you know, more cultural satirical vein and less thriller and the studio wanted it more of a thriller. And it's interesting because the thriller scenes do, a lot of them do work really well. There's that great, Marjorie, you alluded to some of the great like shots of the action. And actually one of my favorite scenes in the whole film is when Finney crashes through the glass, the pane of glass. <laughs> and that is done just, that's perfect. That is a perfect shot. It's done beautifully. And um, so that stuff's effective. But I think there's sort of an unevenness with the film because there's almost like you have like some good humor and, and satire in there that's biting. But then you have like a horror movie. So, you know, it's definitely not a deal breaker. But I think there's some like the, the tonality is not as smooth as uh, as it probably could have been. Because You're right. It's it's a science fiction murder mystery uh, social critique, just so many things that are going on. And I think he handles it very well, but there are some, some misses here and there. We go pretty much into the murder mystery right away. As far as this woman, the same woman that we've seen before, uh, in her apartment and she opens up the door to let her and her boyfriend and she gets stunned by this white light. And I love this whole, this, for lack of a better term, the looker gun, as it were. And I love this gun and I love this effect. And I love that. It's just like the flash of a camera. You know, these women are being uh, photographed over and over and over again throughout the film. And I love that the weapon is very similar to what they have to deal with every day as far as being the, the subject of a camera. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it is a, such a smart film and just, uh, I think all of the commercials alone, I mean, the commercials are just so beautifully done. I mean, as somebody who, who has like, who has worked in advertising in on the local commercial level, I mean, I, I, it, it, there are things that definitely hit home <laughs> for me on there, but, um, but it's such a great, just, I mean, just a, a great kind of peek into just how ridiculous, the advertising pop cultural world was and still is. I mean, I don't think anything has really changed as far as how people are portrayed or taught or condescended to as consumers uh, in our, in our country. I thought it was interesting in the script that there was this, this deleted twin scene, which I thought was (laughs) interesting in the, in the script that's not present in the film. Yeah. There were certain aspects of the film that I felt kind of indulged the idea of surfaces or the value of surfaces and didn't really um, provide any kind of alternative. Yeah. There are mirrors galore all over this film as far as surfaces and reflections. And especially that scene with this one woman in her apartment, she is reflected and we see her putting on her makeup, getting ready. And we just see so many reflections of her. And even when she's moving through the hallways of her apartment, she is just duplicated time and time again. And I guess that kind of, for me anyway, ties into this whole idea of the, the photographs and the reproductions of these people. And we're having these reproductions even before we see the literal reproduction of the Susan Day character. And I like that when we meet the Susan Day character, she's looking at her own photos and talking about how out of date they are and just how basically putting down herself by having these photos of her before she had this treatment by Dr. Larry. You realize, Heather, we had Dr. Nick a few years or a few months ago, and now we have Dr. Larry. 
We and we did Doctor Calgary too. So that may be our next theme. We'll have to do like a Doctor Kildare film for our next uh, episode together. Yes, the Doctor Gillespie killings. But you know, I do love the whole use. I mean, the use of reflection. I mean, this is just such a visually good-looking film. I mean, just the the way that the computer generated, which I believe this was the first film. This was the first mainstream film to uh, create a realistic computer-generated uh, character. And uh, I think predating Tron by like two months. <laughs> so Crichton was definitely ahead of the game on that and on, on a lot of different levels, actually. But um, but yeah, I mean, but the whole scene where they're showing the process of creating the computer-generated version of Sunday, it just looks so good. The colors, you know, it's a very well-shot film. I think that I was actually, it was ni- nice to see something of Crichton's like that that wasn't, you know, I think most people now just think of like you know jurassic park and big you know big over the top dinosaurs i think looker definitely is kind of you know almost more like a footnote on his filmography as probably you know as far as mainstream audiences go in this day and age but it's a it's a beautifully shot film i I thought susan day was so good her character is very plucky she gets some clunkers of some lines here and there like the one where she's asking larry if he's got a gun yeah you know a gun bang bang that one always hits me wrong but going back to the mirror thing and reflection and, and what you both were saying is that because um, something that just hit me when he goes into that apartment of the second victim, it is covered in large photos of her, like in these, I mean, artistically nude shots. And that to me, that seemed like such a strange thing. I'm like, why would anybody want giant photos of themselves, you know, <laughs> like in their, in their apartment? But that's, I mean, but that could definitely be viewed as a reflection too. Marjorie, you were talking, I was talking about the whole use of the reflections and the doubling and everything, and you were talking about the twins. And it's interesting to me because we meet, uh, what is it, uh, Candy, I think is the name. Early on in the script, she's out on the beach, and she recognizes the doctor, and he almost feels like it's a threat because she walks up to him and immediately knows who he is, and then realizes, or she tells him, oh, you've, you know, perform surgery on all my friends and all this so he you know feels a little bit more at ease and then it's great because later on she shows up in the script it's that scene and i love this scene the scene where they use the looker gun on larry they might have used it before but they're definitely using it very significantly here and it's this whole great scene of him in his house in his apartment i should say and like getting a beer out of the fridge and then realizing at one point that it's warm or watching the the beach volleyball outside and then seeing you know all of a sudden time has passed and there's nobody out on the beach and just we have these great cuts of of time going by and some of it's a little obvious as far as you know he looks at the clock and two hours have passed but then it gets a little bit more and more subtle as we get into it like him opening up the fridge and then time passes and all of a sudden there's frost on the inside of of the items in the fridge like he'd been standing there with the door open for an hour or two And, and i love that sequence and in the script it's added to just a little bit more Candy comes in rather than Cindy coming in. It's Candy coming in and she freaks him out because she introduces him to her twin. They kind of play a little game where, you know, they are dressing the same and, and kind of freak him out as far as, you know, replacing one another. And here he has had this horrible day (laughs) (laughs) of time just passing. Like he just has these few moments of any kind of reality. And then he ends it with, Candy and Mandy, 
you know, freaking him out. And then it's great in the script. He immediately goes out to a grocery store. And I think this is the one thing that is really missing from the movie that could have been in there and should have been in there is, and we get a little, just a little taste of it as far as like when Cindy later on is watching a TV and the eyes of the characters inside of the commercials start glowing and she becomes a little hypnotized. Well, we get that a little bit more. Larry at one point goes into this laboratory into Reston Labs because it's Reston Company who's behind the millimeter perfection of these girls and they're digitizing these girls to be able to use them for uh, models for commercials. And he goes in, Larry goes into this and puts on this thing and they're using like some eye tracking software, which is hilarious because eye tracking is like really important to my job with how like websites work and stuff. And he's watching this commercial in the, in the movie. I can't remember what the product is, but in the script it was for feminine pads. And then later on in the script, after this whole freak out day happens, he immediately goes to the grocery store and starts asking for these pads. And he <laughs> starts quoting the commercial verbatim. And then the store clerk starts quoting the commercial and they just have this whole thing as if they are now actors inside of a commercial. And it's, it's a great, great scene. And I don't think that we get that as much as we should, as far as this use of subliminal advertising that's going on. And then that plays into the whole political angle that we get even further and again i think that's kind of a miss as far as this movie i think is 90 percent of the way there but i think like that aspect of it would have pushed it the other 10 percent oh absolutely well and i mean especially when you think about how which which is funny because i think there's a debate going on right now as we're recording this politics now it's everything's been broken down to like sound bites you know, it doesn't really quite get to that level, but I almost feel like if maybe if Crichton had been given a little more freedom, it would have been really interesting to kind of go into more of that subtext too. You know, because we get a lot of the advertising, but you don't really get the whole political nefarious thing till almost to the very end of it. There's definitely a lot they could have done with that. Also, um, the whole paranoia with the police, because it's kind of alluded to because you have Lieutenant Masters who pops up and he obviously is suspicious of Larry because Larry's been kind of set up basically by Reston, but um but you're not you're there's part points where you almost is masters is he in with digital matrix or is he not because i feel like there was a, some some ambiguity there that was never quite cleared up um except in the deleted scene which is on youtube that you sent me where james coburn's character alludes to masters where you definitely get the feeling okay maybe the police are kind of in their pocket well, yeah, and we get the one model who comes to him, uh, which really introduces him to the mystery. Even more than the police showing up at his door, he gets this other model who he's done work on who comes back in kind of at the beginning of the film who asks him to turn her back and wants all of the things that he did to be undone because – they're out to get her. And the one thing that I found funny was in the screenplay, what they really make a point of doing is she all of a sudden says, oh my God, I left my bags at home. She's you know getting ready for like a flight or a train or something to Chicago. So she runs off. He goes over to her purse, which we have in the film, and he's digging through her purse looking for stuff. And I think he eventually finds the, uh, the digital matrix, aka Resting Corporation, their measurements for her and everything. But while he's digging through her purse, uh, and we have to remember this is 1981 when this film comes out, of course he finds a little silver spoon. So it's just like, oh, okay. Because there is this whole idea of 
the women in this film, at least the first woman who comes in and asks him for all these changes, and then this other woman who comes in and wants all the changes undone, you get the feeling that these are pretty unreliable people. That, you know, even though it's it's a big enough deal that their murders are showing up on TV, it still feels to me, just because of all of the the shots of all of these women that we're getting throughout the film, either in um, you know studio shoots or the commercials or these kind of things, it feels like these four women who have had this process done are very much on the fringes of society. I won't say that they're prostitutes, but I will definitely say that they don't seem to be at the same level as like the woman who is working at Reston or some of these other women, like the even his, his secretary or something. It feels like these women are unreliable and you know if they go missing or whatever it's not going to be that big of a deal which is something i mean a company if you have an evil corporation i mean they're they're going to make sure to find test subjects who if these women go missing nobody's really going to be searching for them too high and low and that's funny that you say that women were seen as unreliable or are meant to be perceived as unreliable i wasn't sure cindy when cindy comes to her family her family is also in a trance state through the commercials. I I mean, to me, I didn't see them as necessarily women that were on the fringes or were supposed to be dispensable or disposable. I felt like everyone is just kind of hypnotized in this world, which is apparently a world of surfaces and nothing else. Even the end of the film, I felt, um, didn't really present an alternative to these surfaces. The main character is is supposed to be this very reliable, sympathetic surgeon plastic surgeon which nowadays seems very odd you know i i don't think he says that physicians and surgeons at least at the time that he made the film would be seen as people of action um people that that are kind to people i don't think that's the case now i think most people feel that doctors physicians surgeons etc especially plastic surgeons would have a profit motive I I totally see that, and I'm so glad that you brought up the scene with her parents, because I feel that that is such a a critical scene that really kind of gets passed over too easily. That whole idea of her coming in and talking to her dad, and just we hear what I Love Lucy on the TV and everything, which is also interesting because they're talking about uh, duck decoys on there. So we again, we have this whole idea of the doubling, even when it comes to what they're watching on television. And just the dad kind of, you know, talking about the reliability of this car and all this stuff. And Cindy's just really kind of confused. And I'm almost wondering if he's quoting from a commercial as well. And I love, again, that we have all of these commercials and television is just omnipresent throughout the film, which really kind of then, as you get more into it, becomes more and more menacing And especially because of what I was talking about earlier, the whole idea of the commercials commenting on things that are happening, it's almost if the commercials were watching them rather than them watching the commercials. And yeah, that scene of her mom and dad, it's just such a a great scene. And my heart really kind of sinks when she goes in there and they are no help to her whatsoever. That's they are basically just zombies in front of the TV. They kind of remind me of the parents from like time bandits or something. They just want nothing to do with her. Right. And there's also photographs of her as a child, everywhere strewn everywhere it's almost as if her parents have gotten used to the fact of commodifying their own daughter at least i i at least got that reading you know among others from that scene which actually the director seemed to feel 
was too heavy handed and too pronounced. Um, but I actually thought like you, I actually thought it was a very useful thing to have in the film. For me, it actually could have gone on for a little bit longer. I could have handled a little bit more of it. Mm -hmm. In different permutations, different variations. And it's funny because even after these women are gone, they're not gone. Because we get to see them throughout the film in these commercials. After they have been killed off, we see their images. And even if they haven't been killed off, like especially with the Susan Day character, we see her being manipulated in these commercials. So it's very interesting, this whole idea of the digitization of these women, the replication of them that way, and then getting rid of the originals. And in that deleted scene that you were talking about, the whole idea of uh, they were the... The, the digital matrix as a, you know, a very fitting thing. They were the originals. And then uh, I think uh, Coburn has a line about, you know, going back to old paperwork and shredding it. They are the, the paperwork. They're the ones that are being shredded and they're just thrown away because we already have a, a copy of them in our computer. We don't need to have the real thing anymore. Kind of being a nuisance, you know, the surgical approach was a mistake. It always was clumsy. See, the three dead girls and Cynthia here were walking examples of our computer research. They were the measurements, the database. And it's corporate policy to shred all old documents to keep it out of the hands of competition. You don't need people anymore. You use computers to create perfect commercial images. You killed three people. We're not just selling soap here, Doctor. The stakes are much higher than that. Think of all the trouble we're in today and what's behind it. Governments, politicians, not business. Multinationals want peace and stability throughout the world, but the governments are recklessly out of control. Or somebody has to see that our future is secure. It's actually way too bad that that scene was deleted or, you know, I mean, I, I know it was in the TV broadcast version of the film, but it's not in the DVD or theatrical cut because uh, talk about some great commentary on just how corporations uh, generally can kind of view people as throwaways. It's like, the, the, how ghoulish is it to think that somebody can look at another human being and just be like, you're disposable. On top of that, on top of the twin ghoulishness of seeing an, a digital image of somebody who you know has been murdered. Which is funny, because now, I mean, you have people doing concerts where they'll have, like, a computer-generated artist. Like Tupac, you know? And it's like, there's something to me very, like, culturally necrophiliac a little bit about that. It's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's ghoulish, it kind of makes me wonder as far as the climax of the film, would we get this whole, because there, there's two really big action scenes for me. I, I won't consider the car chase to be one of these because it just it happens too fast. But there's the, the one thing that we've talked about as far as the fight that happens in the lab between Larry and the mustache man and the, um, how he finally realizes how this looker gun is being used. And the whole idea of we can only see the mustache man on the monitors and otherwise he is invisible to us. I love that whole thing. But as far as the, the final thing, where we have this kind of shootout happening while all of these live TV commercials are, are taking place, which I think is an amazing set piece. It makes me wonder, because we see Cindy in there as one of the people who's interacting with these commercials, this digital model, it makes me wonder were all of these other actors digitized and then shredded the same way that these models were shredded? Yeah, I, I wondered the same thing, which made it made it even more just sort of like sort of kind of just like, ooh, you know, <laughs> kind of gives you that kind of queasiness. But, and, but that's good. 
it's almost like invasion of the body snatchers or something where we have instead of the pods replicating someone in real life they're being replicated on tv or inside of this you know digital matrix and then that's it the original just gets disposed of it's a man-made machine that creates these ideal women that we spend a lot more time on than say the men that are uh, digitized and used and we don't spend any time on dwelling whether or not those were shredded i do think it has something to do with erasing one's origins in a way, you know, killing off women like that and focusing on it so much in a way that these corporations don't need any women anymore. And I think it's it's important that a man is spearheading this and also that his accomplice is probably it's is you know, her death is actually kind of emphasized. Crichton even says in the commentary he wasn't sure if the one woman I'm trying to remember her name, was it Jennifer? If she, uh, his kind of uh, right-hand woman, as opposed to his left-handed man, the the mustachioed man, but um, whether she needed to die or not, uh, Creighton was really kind of concerned. Was it overkill by killing her? Um, was it just enough that she had been, you know, associated with Reston and with this plot, or should she have lived? And I was glad that he had that that concern because there are times where I was just like, well, she's not inherently evil, even though she's the one kind of running to James Coburn and saying, Hey, there's a badge that's missing from the lab. And, you know, he came to Larry came to the lab and everything, and we really need to take care of him. And she's the one pushing for another trip to Larry's house with the looker gun in order to, you know, find out what he knows or maybe plant some more evidence, these kind of things. So I don't, I still like Crichton. I don't necessarily see her as inherently evil or anything, though she's not necessarily fully outside of being culpable. Maybe there's a hint that she is somewhat apathetic because she does loosen the the handcuff. In some ways, it's like I almost think her character is more, in some ways, perhaps more disturbing than Coburn's because his, his character is straight up, obviously, like he is the main guy. He is the main bad guy and the main villain and makes no bones about it. I mean, he is in it to win it. It's all about the bottom line, which is money. Um, where she almost has, every time you see her character talk about the process of Digital Matrix, there's almost like, um, maybe not quite a religious zealousy. But it's something that you can tell she is like emotionally tied to. Like she really believes in it as a project. In some ways, that almost makes her more, to me, almost more of a more of a layered character, but almost more of a disturbing character. Because I mean, on top of that, I mean, she has no problems. Obviously, she knows the women are getting killed, and to have a fellow female, you know, it's almost like sometimes it's almost more disturbing if you have something sexist come out of a woman's mouth when you're a woman yourself, you know, than it is from a man. And that's an interesting layer to that too. She seems to like have a, an emotional tie to what they're doing and believes in it. Like it's like, it's something morally good almost, which obviously it's quite not. One more thing I want to bring up as far as culpability here is the whole idea of Larry and where does Larry fit into this? Cause the one thing I found very interesting was that when he's there performing surgery, he you know requests that they play some Vivaldi. And I don't know if it's the same song. It might not even be the same composer, but it definitely has the same feel as far as the music when 
uh, Susan Day, the Cindy character, is getting digitized, which is kind of a weird echo to me that we have the music of him as he's performing the surgery, and then later on it's repeated as she's also kind of having this procedure done on her. So it almost, to me, kind of casts a little bit of a negative light on Larry as far as his involvement in this whole scheme overall. He, by his profession alone, is part and parcel of the problem, of the bigger problem, which is, you know, basically people becoming so obsessed with body image and superficiality that they're almost sacrificing their humanity to fit this unrealistic image. But at the same time, like, I mean, because most of the surgeries you see him do are all of the, of the very, like, Hollywood, <laughs> you know, model, vain variety. There are references to him, like, fixing somebody's hand and, and doing, you know, because there are plastic surgeries that one can get because they're in a car wreck or whatever, you know, that aren't necessarily tied to vanity per se, but he doesn't date his patients. And I know at one point, you know, early on, you know, he says to, you know, one of his coworkers about like, you know, having some, you know, moral issues working on um, the first girl because she's already I mean, she's already gorgeous. And he's just like, well, if you don't do it, somebody less capable will. And he's like, oh, you know, so it's almost like he feels morally compelled to work on it because, you know, if somebody else who's a lesser surgeon works on her, they could really fuck her up, make her a plastic surgery disaster as opposed to a, a looker, you know. Finney pulled it off perfectly, though. I, I love Albert Finney. And, you know, this character could have been just a generic hero. I mean, he's he's written well, but I think having Finney pull, you know, Finney play him definitely pulled off the different layers of uh, of Doctor Larry. I almost wonder because the way that he interacts with that partner, uh, Doctor Belfield, I think his name is. Um, it's almost like. Uh, you know, you set him up and I'll knock him down kind of thing. It almost <laughs> seems like I don't date my patients, but if Jim comes in here with somebody really hot, I'll date her and vice versa. Like it almost <laughs> seems like they're teeing them up to each other. I could just be reading like a nip tuck kind of thing in there or something, but I don't know. They, I, I might be being too mean to Dr. Larry. Actually, the pairing of classical music with surgery is interesting. And it's actually present in actual surgery demonstration videos. Um, and I think perhaps that's because classical music is seen as the perfect sort of music, the ideal music. It also kind of conjures up this idea of the composer and the author and um, someone making a new face and someone digitizing someone to make a virtual version, a more perfect version of the, an organic being. It has something to do with this male impotence and this surrogate, you know, or this simulacrum in a way. Well, yeah, it's a lot easier to control a woman once she's been digitized than it is to control her in real life. And you can make her say anything and you can make her do anything, which is so at the heart of this film as far as once we have your image, we can manipulate it however we want. As they were performing the classical music while he's performing the surgery and when she's getting digitized, I kept having visions of uh, Edward G. Robinson and Soylent Green as he's laying there on that slab and they're performing the uh, euthanasia on him and playing the you know pastoral and have the the beautiful images and everything and having that classical music kind of you know escort him out. I don't know if that was just you know my negative association with classical music sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but but I just got that same vibe as they were, you know, as he's working on this woman or as Susan Day's being scanned. I just kept picturing, you know, Keys there and, and poor uh, Charlton Heston on the outside as his friend is putting himself to death. 
Well, there is something kind of magical about having some lovely classical music paired with with imagery that is not perhaps so lovely either in visual representation or certainly in tone. I mean, because even with the, even with the digital, you know, when Sandy's digitized, I mean, it's beautifully done. I mean, the, you know, it looks it looks good, but at the same time, you know, when you think about the full weight of what you're seeing and what's happening, set with this lovely music, it's um it's a good contrast. It was definitely a good move on Crichton's part. So, Marjorie, you brought up the whole idea of the twins and everything, and I do find it funny because we run into one of the twins in the final sequence of the film. She's the one who says to Larry, you know, what are you doing here? And he's got the uniform on of one of the security guys. And then she goes to shake the hand of the mustache man and and puts her hand on his gun. She still makes an appearance, but she's not there uh, any more than that. She's just there for that one bit. The hand on the gun is also, I wasn't sure if I should read it as a innuendo or anything. Yeah, that that definitely brings out some Freudian implications, doesn't it? She's so shocked. (laughs) And we talked a little bit about that deleted scene, which comes up and it is available on YouTube. I highly recommend that folks check it out. And it's, it's strange because I can't remember. I, I think it was you Marjorie who brought up the whole idea of Crichton's um, commentary. And he really is very uh, cognizant of the pacing and just how long it takes to tell a story, especially something that in 1981 was so technologically advanced to the point where he's pointing out how much he kind of, is amazed by the insert shots of of security cards and security badges being used because nowadays those are just so second nature you know you don't even have to put the card in you just swipe it near the reader and yet he had to shoot insert shots to show this whole idea of you know the card reader and stuff in 81 was fairly advanced technology so i can see where he might have cut some things that shouldn't have been cut. And that scene with Coburn kind of, I I won't even say it's not even like the drawing room scene where he goes in there and just like starts to lay out the entire plot because we get the, the bits and pieces throughout. And we even have, you know, Albert Finney at one point is like, Oh, I know why they're doing this. And he explained some stuff or later on, we'll get a little bit more explanation. And that's just, you know, it's, it's not a scene of, you know, James Coburn twirling his mustache and talking about how evil he is and how he's going to rule the world because it still takes a little bit more than that to get this whole idea of, um, because the one thing that's missing from the missing scene <laughs> is their escape and them. Um, there's a, uh, there's two party scenes going on. There's the one at the end where we have the revelation of the uh, Reston technology and the whole idea of the commercials and everything. And that first commercial is that Senator and we get to see his eyes and he's running for president and all this kind of stuff. But there's a missing scene before that, which is after Coburn lays out everything for Cindy and Dr. Larry, they escape and there's a political function going on where the Senator is there and he he is boring the audience to tears. They are so distractible by him talking in real life, which is completely different than what we see just a few scenes later when he's on TV and talking and they are completely riveted on there to the point where Cindy is talking about, you know, look at how they're, they're staring at him. So it's just that to me is another thing that really should have been in the movie just to see that difference between the two. And then it really drives home the whole idea of 
media manipulation, not just for consumer gro- goods, but also for the political means. And you know, that also kind of makes it even more nefarious when we get the end of it. And they talk about how Reston products are used around the world. And that's, that's just the nice, like, yeah, I think Marjorie brought up the whole thing of there is not that balance struck at the end. Even though Reston has been defeated, it still feels like that tide has kind of moved on and that it, we're going to get more of this throughout the rest of the globe. Yes, and I don't even think that the characters are very aware even of their participation. You had mentioned way earlier that you really appreciated that scene where time is conveyed as passing and the when the looker gun appears in his apartment. Yeah, I was actually surprised during the commentary that he explained that how much audiences are used and trained to ignoring an enormous amount of change and just assuming, you know, that the filmmakers have to do it for practical reasons. And so, and how, how um, explicit he had to be to convey that idea of time passing. I'm not sure that that's still the case, but that's interesting. The way that time sculpting time um, and making sure that you're, you're communicating to an audience, an audience perception of time during that period. I, yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't have guessed that was one of the major considerations during the post production. Well, one of the things I noticed with last week's film, which was Hudson Hawk, was towards the end of the film, it just keeps going from day to night and then back to day again. <laughs> Though we do get that weird moment when Finney is in the back of that car, and I don't think they explain that very well at all because it looks like he gets in a police car, but it's actually a Reston security car, and they cut out a couple lines there where like they look back and they see him, and it's like. Like, oh, we got our Christmas bonus early or whatever. You know, it's like there, there's more gloating on the part of these guys and more of a surprise when he sits up in the back of the car and he like tries to, you know, hey, fellas, you got to take me down to headquarters. And so that's missing, which is kind of strange. But then the other really weird part of that scene is when he's in the back of the car and it fades to black and then comes back up from black. And it's just like, okay. And I know you can explain anything in this movie as far as la- you know, loss of time <laughs> or, or bad continuity because of the looker gun. But that's just a weird moment to me. There's certain things in this film that are kind of like that, where it's, you could almost tell it's like, yeah, there need- needed to be a little bit more exposition. I will say, um, because you're talking about some of Susan Day's lines. She did get one of my favorite lines. She did get some clunkers, but I loved it when she was watching the digitized commercial and she was like, man, this is just as dumb as the, as the old ones, as the regular ones. And it's, and uh, I love, I loved that. I thought that was a really, a really funny observation and really true. It's just like, yeah, it's, you know, and, and that kind of speaks to the whole, you know, thing that both of you are talking about of how, like, even when the film ends, I mean, is any, is, is everything really solved? Is anything really better than it was? Not, not quite. It's sort of the same, same as it ever was to quote talking heads. It's very funny to me how far we've come or haven't come as far as that, that end sequence where we have, and I love that end sequence. I love this whole idea of the, um, you know, the, the way that it was shot and that we have these commercials that are being shown kind of live. And then we have the actors who are all digitized, but then we have, you know, the mustache man and Reston and Dr. Larry there uh, kind of 
popping up inside of the commercials and really subverting them and everything. But it's great to me that everything is real in the commercials, except for the actors when it's 180 degrees from that, as far as like, you know, watching the behind the scenes of like a, you know, Phantom Menace or something where it's just these poor actors interacting with nothing, (laughs) you know, and there are, there are no tables for people to fall on. There are no cars for, you know, poor plastic surgeons to hide in the back of or anything. (laughs) It's just completely make believe with just the people there in front of the green screen. So it's, it's interesting that they could recreate the people, but they still needed the props. And the, even though the, the, the people now are the props and everything else is completely fake. You just get a big green screen and some human actors, as well as a mix with CG, you know, characters too. That scene was just beautifully pulled off. I mean, my my only my only gripe about the ending is like I I felt like like Cindy and the Doctor dating. I thought that that to me felt like a TV movie of the week choice. Like I was not a fan <laughs> of that of that plot choice. I mean, I know it's expected. It's Hollywood, but that's but you know, I mean. The film has like so much kind of going for it as far as intelligence that to me that just felt a bit it's a bit hokey, you know, and I didn't really think they had I mean they had good chemistry, but almost to me like their chemistry is almost more like, you know, it wasn't sexual to me either. Like I think we're supposed to think there is sexual tension, but I didn't really feel that off a of day in Fenny. I almost got a little father daughter kind of thing more than lover lover kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean and to me she acts like somebody's which god I feel bad cuz I'm just realizing, you know, obviously Susan Day's best known for playing Lori on The Parched Family, <laughs> but but she almost to me comes across as like somebody's like like kind of like silly kid sister and not like this sexy woman model type like like the other girls, which actually makes her I think more pers- personable. She seems more like a like a human being and not just like, you know, I'm a pretty pretty little robot kind of thing. I, I definitely would have not had that. I would have made that move personally. I don't think they needed a date. Well, otherwise they just shake hands and go, well, see ya. Right. <laughs> see on the, see on the flip. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Going all the way back to the, the beginning of the conversation, uh, Marjorie, when you brought up the whole idea of the film being a silent movie, I really got that for some reason when I was listening to, Crichton's commentary and he's talking about the divorce on score and how prevalent that music is throughout the end of the film. That final sequence really isn't a whole lot of dialogue. I mean, we get the kind of bland stuff going from the commercial actors and everything, but for the most part, we don't have Finney and, and uh, Coburn and the mustache man saying anything they're just kind of chasing each other and then we get that great electronic score just building 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 which i thought was just phenomenal i'm very much a fan of just music <laughs> and um a few sound effects and and just visuals i actually i didn't mind the pacing at all i thought that was a plus i don't think it i mean perhaps a few less inserts of gadgets but i mean it didn't bother me i i think i was more bothered by the male fantasy aspect of it but that i mean you know that's another topic but it's a good topic to get into as far as the way that these women are being controlled and everything what's kind of your take on this it makes sense but i feel like it's a mainstream film it's it's aiming to be popular and mainstream i feel like a 12 year old boy would think up this story you know it's something that appeals to the 12 year old boy and all of us you know, but that can be problematic if you're looking for other things in a film. 
you know, and then there are some definite, some definite visual accomplishments that are worthy of attention in terms of the male representation. I'm just perplexed uh, by uh, the the lack of male surgery. I guess even though he said it was ahead of its time by delving into this hush hush topic of a plastic surgery. I, because the the story did involve men getting surgery as well, presumably exact surgery, especially a politician. I mean, I don't know why we don't see it. I mean, it seems like we're very, very concerned with the women. It's interesting that they bring up the admiral and the politician, the senator, right at the beginning of the movie. So we kind of get the idea of this going into it, but missing the senator in a middle scene really robs the film of that idea you know talking about the whole idea of the 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 subliminal messages and everything and you're right it does become much more of the story of these women who are being murdered and the ones trying to escape and all this kind of stuff which is very much that young boy's fantasy kind of thing as far as you like oh i can take susan day laurie from the partridge family and throw her into this computer and then she'll be mine forever it's very uh you know weird sciencey kind of thing you know like when they're making kelly lebrock's breast ginormous in the computer and in uh, uh weird science that's kind of along the same lines of what we're talking about here when we're taking these women and making them perfect digitizing them and then controlling them forever it really does focus a little too much on that versus what i think is the bigger story which is this whole the ever-present commercials and and we have that great line where coburn's talking about how many hours a day people watch commercials how many hours a day people watch television and if you were to add it all up it'd be 15 years worth of television which is the same as like a sentence after you commit murder or something you know being in prison you you would spend the same amount of time as if you were watching television which i find to be great but it doesn't have as much weight without the rest of the stuff around it no, I mean, there, there are parts of the film where, I mean, because there's so much, there is a lot of obvious, like, male gaze going on. And um, and part of that is the commentary, because, I mean, that's the thing sex sells and women, you know, it's, it's the easiest thing in the world for a company to put a pretty girl in, a, in something to get that get the most obvious demo does the film kind of cross into where it's it you feel like it's almost leering a bit though where it's becoming maybe part of the problem maybe i mean definitely with uh you know with realizing that the men aren't focused i mean yeah because there are men used in, in some of the ads but we get nothing we don't even get an illusion i mean at least we get an illusion to the admiral and to the senator i found it very telling too when they are talking about how the one woman scored in the television commercial until she started to move and then her scores went down. Do you kind of see that as kind of like as a still image, it's safer, but then if this woman moves and she's real, then it's a little more threatening to people. Well, okay. What is modeling? What is, what is being an actor's actress or actor in a commercial? I mean, they're monetizing people's good looks, perceived good looks, and they're, exploiting people's desire to be beautiful and I mean modeling it's it's a projection of you know it's supposed to be an idealized human form that people are supposed to be able to project themselves onto you know to sell the form whatever product so yeah I I don't know the score I I, I do think it's true I do think it's easier much easier to lie in a still photograph than it is to lie over several frames I think that that's always 
I always find it funny when models talk to me about, you know, uh, photographers respecting the human face, not having any props or gimmicks, you know, and just capturing the realness in front of them, which, you know, I disagree with because I think all, all of this is artifice and that's the joy of it. You know, as soon as you start believing the illusion, I think that's when you can get into trouble. Obviously, airbrushing has been around for a long damn time. I don't know when the first airbrushing took place, but photo manipulation has been around probably, you know, since the Matthew Brady days of photography, you know, the daguerreotypes and all these kind of things. So we've had manipulation of images going on forever. But then to think about the way that images can be manipulated now and, you know, what you're talking about as far as a still image versus a moving image, I'm sure that. Uh, so many of the images that we see, uh, especially in advertising, are just airbrushed or photoshopped nowadays, like nobody's business. But now, with the whole idea of the um, you know After Effects and everything, it's so much easier to airbrush a moving image, as a, as it were, to correct those flaws. You know, I just was watching a little thing about. Um, Gone Girl and hearing of all the digital effects that were used in that movie just to make sure that the actress's hairline was the same from scene to scene because of all the wigs that she had to wear, which is just crazy to me how how much manipulation happens in things that we're just not aware of whatsoever. Right, right. I actually didn't know that about Gone Girl. And I, I was just thinking of Hunger Games and Jennifer Lawrence's bottom being retouched as she's moving and that being of great importance but actually i think that's a problem nowadays with filmmaking because you're you've given so much choice to alter an image to fix an image whereas before it was kind of a controlled error you know and you would try to capture it in camera and perhaps the focus was placed elsewhere and now i think you're you're criticized for not taking advantages of the amount the infinite possibilities of altering this because you tend to focus on the wrong things, wrong things, the perfection of an image. Because in the, in the end, the audience doesn't really care. You know, they, I mean, it just washes over them. And with this, it's interesting because they are so into the perfection of the image, kind of to get those commercial scores up. But I would imagine that they also want better commercial scores so that people are looking at these things so they can make that connection. So they can see the eyes of these people in the commercials and get that message coming across which um you know again i think could hit home a little bit more as far as the use of the subliminal stuff like i like when cindy goes into her little hypnotic trance and everything but we don't get her later on and i think uh, you know i know you read the script but i'm pretty sure there's a line later on where she says you know i gotta get one of those whatever they're trying to sell on tv like she immediately wants one of those things she's been affected by the the, the spot it's manipulation of everything just in order to sell those products but to go beyond selling of the products and be able to push that specific message to you know whoever's looking at the commercial yeah and i actually think it's pretty on point to use eyes as this method of hypnosis um very very existential you know it's stealing one's world when you're looking into another's eyes and reminds me of Sartre a lot (laughs) When it comes to your own image, how often have you been manipulated when it comes to yourself being captured on film? And are you ever surprised to see how your image has been used? Yes, there were several times. I mean, on top model, you're going to be airbrushed regardless. But in terms of actual modeling afterwards with a signed agency, 
yes, there were several occasions where my face looked utterly different. I mean, to this day, people don't understand how I was in that picture because my, my face is completely stretched to resemble a Ukrainian template. And the cheekbones, I mean, the square face is the, the face that sells. The eyes that are spread apart, I mean, there's a certain degree that is said to be most attractive between the cheekbones and, and the eye placement um, and the size of the nose and the size of the shape of the lips. Yes, it's constant. And yeah, I looked a little bit like an alien, but I think that's what fashion editorials usually go for. I also think that it's due to the times and I think it's pretty arbitrary depending. Um, but I do think that the people that have power decide whatever we consider beautiful, you know, I mean, that's not a new idea. Um, so I wasn't particularly offended. I mean, I, I don't think they need to, to respect my face, you know, if I've agreed to the job, you know, that's, I'm expecting manipulation. And I think in some cases, Photoshop is your friend when you're trying to create a nice image. So that whole idea of the manipulation of millimeters must have really kind of hit home with you. Yes. In fact, <laughs> in fact, this film, I had to, to kind of distance myself a little bit because I found myself rather implicated in the whole millimeters process. And just it kind of, uh, you know, because you can't do this job. It is just a job modeling and you can't do it without being somewhat influenced by the standards. You know, I've definitely gotten plenty of feedback on my facial measurements and uh, what I should have altered had I wanted to to do better, you know, actually make money, you know, which I didn't. I didn't make money, but I wasn't I never aspired to be a model. I was kind of doing it from an observational stance and it was uh, informative. <laughs> yeah. And it was definitely I mean, I wish it hadn't uh, influenced my perception of beauty afterwards. I tended to kind of catch myself and um, remind myself that these are these aren't real, you know. All of this is unimportant. And yeah, in general, I think people tend to look at and models as some sort of mirror, you know. And I I don't quite understand that. I mean, to me, modeling has nothing to do with beauty or confidence. It really doesn't. It has to do with uh, selling. And um, there's isn't much difference between a sales associate in retail and a model. There really isn't. It's just more smoke and mirrors and cameras. Can you even look at a magazine these days and not start to see the manipulation of stuff? Yeah, I, I can't. <laughs> I can't. I mean, I, I see a magazine and I see, yeah, I see, I, first of all, I see the beauty standards that are becoming trendier um, and actually that are still present in Looker. I mean, I feel like female faces haven't really, the idealized female face hasn't really altered Except perhaps it was very white and uniform and looker and less bizarre and not very high fashion, perhaps. But in terms of commercial faces, it's still the same. I definitely see the airbrushing. But again, I don't think it's necessarily bad. You know, as I, you know, everyone smooths out things when they're trying to create an image. But um, in terms of, it's again like showing a variety. If you show a variety, it's fine. If you only show this and only idolize that, then, you know, that's uh, problematic. Have you guys seen those videos that it, I, I don't know who is producing them. I just run into them occasionally where it's like beauty standards from the 1900s or 1930s up until today. And they'll take one model and they'll kind of say what the standards were like in i've seen now two of them brazil and japan and they'll go through and they'll style a model's hair the, 
the way that it was styled in that decade, uh, do their makeup the way that it was done in that decade, and just zip us through like 70 years or uh, 80 years of fashion. And I found it fascinating to see, you know, of course, we all know that people change, hairstyles change, interest rates fluctuate, those kind of things. But just, just, just to see one person being manipulated so much, especially when it comes to the makeup, is just crazy. Have you, have you guys seen those? I have. I, I have. I have as well. I saw one that was. Uh, I haven't seen the Japan or Brazil. I'd like to see those. I've seen. I saw one that was uh, Western standards. Yeah, I'd be curious to see that one as well. I think they're really well done, and it's just fascinating to see how we change, how we, you know, certain looks will come back, some will go away, and just talking about the beauty standards is what kind of really brought that to my mind. All right, so let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back in just a few minutes after these important messages. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Projection booth listener. Come real close. I've got a secret just for you. Valentine's Day doesn't have to be the most annoying celebration of the year now. The wonderful gentlemen of the projection booth have made your Valentine's Day as smooth as satin sheets this year. Simply slide right on over to adamandeve.com where there's over 18,000 adult toys, games, sexy lingerie, and an endless amount of DVDs to please even your naughty tastes. And because you're a projection booth listener, you're going to get 50% off just about any item in the entire store. Plus, you're also going to receive a free romance kit. This romance kit includes a toy for him, a special massager for her, and a little something you both can enjoy. And that's not all. You're even going to receive a free adult DVD to put you both in the mood. Plus, because the projection booth really wanted this Valentine's Day to be completely pain-free, you're even going to get free shipping on your entire order. So come to adamandeve.com, get 50% off one item, a free romance kit, and free shipping when you enter the offer code BOOTH at checkout. That's B-O-O-T-H. The projection booth and adamandeve.com, they got your Valentine's Day covered. mother finds a way to bring back her dead son is not all that comes home miss mabel was uh, discovered deceased inside one of the rooms her body was found upright in a rocking chair what's in a figure made of sticks and leaves judging from initial reports miss mabel had been dead a matter of months based on the unsolved mystery of olivia mabel there were a lot of photos and personal objects on that and candles and what we call santuarios. You have no power over me. Leave me alone! Daddy, need help! A short film from Elf Tree Media. Mommy. Thought Form. Support our Kickstarter campaign now through February 17th at thoughtformfilm.com. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet. Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us. However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast. Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com. Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. 
Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. And we are talking about Looker. So while I was doing some research about this film, I've watched a couple similar movies, um, similar in some ways and different in others. There was one that I watched that was pretty terrific. It was a Canadian tax shelter film called Agency. I bought the DVD of this thing just because it was so hard for me to find. And the DVD ended up showing up and it was like one of those paper sleeves that looked like you could buy it at Dollar General. And the movie itself was like a VHS transfer onto the DVD. So every once in a while, the image would start skipping and stuff. And at first I was like, well, that's really clever the way that they're manipulating the image. And then after a while I was like, no, this is just a really shitty transfer. Lee majors and a, a very young Saul Rubinick and, um, Valerie Perrine is in it. Oh, so, wow. and then our main bad guy is Robert Mitchum, who I have to say is not necessarily as charismatic as, uh, Coburn is as Reston. Oh, that's too bad. Cause it, I mean, Mitchum's, you know, Mitchum's the man. And this one is much more about subliminal messages and kind of tying into what we were just talking about before the break, Marjorie, there's a lot of, you know, print images and how they were, you know, being airbrushed and, you know, tying in that whole, like, uh, I can't remember the name of the book where it was talking about subliminal stuff, but they're showing like the, the skull faces and the ice cubes and those kind of things. That book apparently also has a chapter on, uh, this is a side note, on the uh, all the processes of subliminal use uh, in Friedkin's The Exorcist. Heard that's a pretty good breakdown of of that film, but that's a whole other <laughs> that's a whole other episode. But uh, but no, Agency sounds really good. I mean, how do you feel like Mike? It compares to Simone, the uh, Al Pacino film. Yeah, Simone to me, you know, is definitely not about advertising, but it's definitely about that whole idea of the manipulation of uh, of women. And I, I can't say that I made it to the end of that. Have you guys seen that movie at all? I have not. I have not. And it's by the director of The Truman Show? or Yeah. So we've got Al Pacino in there as a director, and sometimes it feels like he might be kind of just mouthing the words from the director. Um but which is kind of ironic because the director Al Pacino in this film uh, 
ends up running across uh, Elias Codius, and Codius is just about, uh, you know, he's on death's door because he's been staring at images too long and he has a tumor in his eye, but he's come up with a way to manipulate uh, code and everything and, and create a synthetic actress, so a completely, completely computer-based actress. And Winona Ryder... Uh, steps out on this movie that Pacino is doing this passion project and he is stuck without an actress to reshoot all of these scenes. So he uses this program, uh, which is simulation one, which is shortened down to Simone uses this to recreate the Winona Ryder parts in this movie. And it is just this smash hit. Of course, you know, it couldn't have been a flop or anything. (laughs) And then it becomes this whole thing of, uh, Taylor Pruitt Vince like tracking him down and not being able to find Simone and it it almost becomes like an episode of Three's Company or something as far as like you know oh you just missed her and these kind of things you know so it, it's it's not that good and then like I said it's it's funny because when Simone is talking or acting or anything it is Pacino who as the director is doing all the the performance for her so basically it feels like there's levels of puppetry going on here. It almost feels like our director of Simone is manipulating Pacino, who's now manipulating the, you know, Simulacron. Uh, And it just, um, it feels very manipulative to me and very like, you know, well, actors are just meat and we don't need them at all. And all this kind of stuff, it just feels wrong to me for so many reasons. But, and um, at the same time, it feels like a cheesy you know, um, kind of, uh, comedy kind of thing. Like, uh, you know, like Captain Tuttle from mash or something. One of these made up characters where you're just like, Oh yeah, yeah. They were just here five minutes ago. I'm so sorry. And like to the point where he even hires a model who kind of looks like the Simone program to go out with him and then, you know, get pictures. And so it's this whole like race against the paparazzi and all this kind of stuff. So I can't really recommend it though. It's an interesting idea as far as, how much a director controls a person. It's a, I, I think we'll be talking about a little bit more later on in the year when we talk about Vertigo, where you know seeing Jimmy Stewart controlling the image of Kim Novak and everything very much the same way that a, a Hitchcock would control the lives of any of these blonde actresses that he he worked with. I can see that as working a lot better than I could with this kind of modern update of it. I never saw the uh, Simone. I remember when it came out and I thought it looked, I honestly, I thought it looked really bad. I mean, it's too bad. The Truman show is, is quite good, but uh, yeah, it's, um, but yeah, I mean the, the concept of controlling somebody to fit this perfect image, I mean, can kind of go tie in, you know, with, with themes like, well, actually when we talked about boxing Helena, I mean, you could tie it to that or certainly the story of, O. basically the loss of humanity to fit an ideal that is unrealistic is one that's definitely been explored in the arts for hundreds of years. And now we just have a nice techno, you know, technology edge to it as seen in Looker. Heather, you talked about the whole idea of Crichton and towards the end of his career, he was really associated with these kind of larger than lives things. Of course, like Jurassic Park really made him much more of a household name than he was, which is kind of sad to me because he was such a great artist to me. And just, it's amazing. This guy, this ginormous, what he was like eight feet tall (laughs) guy who uh, starts his career as a doctor 
moves into writing, but not just writing novels. He's writing screenplays. He's directing screenplays. He's, he's directing movies. And it was just always amazing to me. I didn't realize, like I knew him, you know, pre 93 or whatever it was. I knew him as a writer and I remember a lot of his books, you know, being available and everything. And then it took me a while for me to realize that he had directed and written one of my favorite uh, movies when I was growing up, which was The Great Train Robbery, the one with uh, Donald Sutherland and Sean Connery. And then to finally start diving into his stuff and realize, oh, he brought us uh, Westworld and he brought us Runaway and he brought us all these other great things. And it took me a while to finally go back and like watch coma but um it, which i have to say i'm not necessarily into but then a lot of his other stuff i was just like wow i really didn't realize just how pervasive he was and especially during the 70s how many great things that he did and then not only that he was writing these books and having them turn into movies but then like looker is an original screenplay which i find to be fascinating this and runaway which i think is a great double feature especially if you like guys with mustaches <laughs> Um, you're definitely going to like watching Runaway and Looker back to back because we've got the mustache man and then the mustache man, Tom Selleck, as the lead in Runaway. Oh, I know. The, the only person we're missing is uh, Sam Elliott. It would have. Oh, he, I, I know. He would have completed the mustache uh, triumphant, the mustache trilogy. <laughs> but- That's too much mustache for any one man to have. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is a whole lot of mustache. No, it's funny because with Rosevich's character, because uh, you don't get a good clean look at his face initially uh, until a little bit further on in the film. You just keep seeing him with those glasses and as a shadowy figure. And for a second, I was like, man, Richard Masur, like has beefed up. And I was like, oh, wait, that is not Richard Masur. But <laughs> I could totally see that. <laughs> <laughs> but um. But no, Crichton. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're so right. I mean, because he, it, it's weird because he's. I mean, he's fame. I mean, he's no longer with us now. But I mean, he's still very, a very much a famous name. But at at the same time, I think yeah, a lot of people have kind of forgotten. I mean, I kind of forgotten, admittedly, until you know reevaluate, you know, watching Looker and reevaluating his past films and like, oh yeah, Westworld, which is such a classic, and Runaway is great too. Is that he is such a he was such a smart writer, and you know, with Looker, it's not just you know he's kind of playing the themes of and we've talked about the gender thing, but there's also just the the natural inborn fear that I think humans have of being replaced by machines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that sort of take on, on that fear uh, in Looker was very interesting. And I know he's played with that before as well. Oh yeah. Especially with Westworld and everything. And you, you know, kind of is it, is Yul Brenner, you know, of course he's a machine, but he sometimes seems more lifelike than some of the people that are around him and just his kind of need to complete his programming and kill Richard Benjamin and stuff. Just that unstoppable Terminator thing that we get 11 years before the Terminator is is pretty terrific. And I won't say that Crichton was infallible. He definitely had some clunkers, like, you know, as far as uh, adaptations of some of his things. Like I'm not a big fan of uh, disclosure. Mm. Uh, I, I thought sphere was one of the worst movies <laughs> ever made. Um, and I don't say that lightly. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, he, he was associated with some terrible things. I'd like to go back. I didn't realize until kind of doing the research on this, that he had written Congo before, uh, looker, but then he felt that it was really 
kind of uh, untenable to have all of these uh, apes in this movie, um, you know, so many years before the CGI and all these kind of things. And so it was interesting that he would kind of turn down a you know project to, to make one of his own books into a movie just because he knew that it couldn't be done. But the thing that got me, because I haven't read Congo, and I want to now go back and read it, because he describes it as more of a Jules Verne thing, and that this takes place back in like the, the 1800s, which I never realized before, which I think would have made it much more interesting had they been able to do that, um, you know, kind of take on it in 1995, rather than, you know, the modern stuff and the crystals and the cell phone calls and all this kind of garbage that they just kind of layered in there. So I'd like to go back now and read the original just to see how this plays out as much more of a you know a 19th century adventure oh my gosh yeah that would have that would have been a completely different movie it would have been a good movie perhaps as opposed to the resulting which it breaks my heart because i love tim curry and bruce oh, Cam- yeah. and bruce campbell two of my favorite actors in the same movie and, and it just wasn't just wasn't that great i mean it was better than sphere though i think we can say that i love the story sorry to to uh, take us off track a little bit, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, Bruce Campbell tells an amazing story about working on Congo because he's there, like, he'll go through the jungle and he'll, like, you know, pick up a leaf and look at it and put it down and then move on to the next and then, you know, do this, that, and the other thing. And he was talking about how great it was because he was in all of these scenes where he would just come in for a second and then, you know, walk out and then a show up in another um you know set way down the line kind of thing so when they actually filmed the movie they would bring him in on a day and then go okay you know we don't need you now for another week or whatever and he'd just go on the the beaches of costa rica and just live it up with him and his family (laughs) (laughs) and then they call him back in okay he walks through he like you know picks up something looks at that sets it down okay another week or so of you know, vacation time. So he was like, this was the best shoot I was ever on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. But um, going back to Looker, for anybody like who's a fan of Massacre at Central High, the actor Daryl Morey, who plays David uh, in Massacre at Central High, who's like the lead character, is in Looker for like, he literally has one line and he's working on the commercial crew on the beach when they're shooting Susan Day's uh, character trying to do a, yeah, where she's trying to jump in the air and do volleyball and she keeps falling in the sand. And the, re- the repetition of that shot was really good. I liked that they kept repeating that of her falling in the sand, almost like she was being, like it was like a death throw, which was really, that was really done. But yeah, so a little cult film trivia. Yeah, I mean, the lead for Massacre at Central High basically has a walk on in Looker. Which is too bad. He's a great actor. Well, and the sound effects during that scene are terrific. And then the sound effect of the gun, I always find to be just a great, great sound effect. There are certain sounds in movies, like, you know, talking a few weeks ago about uh, the sound of Ming's ring in uh, Flash Gordon. But the sound of that gun in Looker is one of those classic sound effects. When you make a move like that in a film, it's... You always take a risk. Is it going to be cheesy? You know, is it right. going to ruin, you know, the mood or the atmosphere? And um, I think they played it. They played it really well. You know, um, I loved the computer imaging of trying to compare her jumping up to what they wanted as the mm-hmm. perfect movement. That was uh, that was really beautifully done. I mean, you could, uh, which again ties into the whole silent film thing, Marjorie, that you were talking about too. Is that um, <laughs> I think that's something a lot of people wouldn't initially pick up. You know, watching it like a modern, uh, a modern audience, but uh, but it's it's very cool. 
Well, it's great that a 1981 film that relies on computers so much has aged so well. Like, I don't look at these things and just laugh. Like, we don't get the, you know, the explanation of stuff. And I think that's one of the things that I like about the movie, too, is that even though we do have those moments of showing the key card, entering the slot, and those kind of things, we don't get the painful explanation that goes with it. And we don't get, you know, even though... You know, Albert Finney is kind of a uh, Mary Sue through a lot of this, where he's walking through these parts, and we've got Jennifer explaining everything to him. She's not doing it in such a way that it's just like, oh, God, this is so painful. Like, we have words like digital matrix being thrown around, and luckily we don't have anyone going, you know, oh, digital, that's a series of zeros and ones, you know? Thank God for that. <laughs> yeah, now that was good. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about Crichton with this film, especially is you're you don't feel like you're being talked down to the audience right. is being you're you're being treated equally and not being condescended to which is always good we're being led along the path but we don't have to have these you know billboards on each side of the road telling us where we're going let's take another break and play a preview for next week's show you ask what are the limits of the computer can the computer think as we think feel as we feel act as we act there are many things the computer can do but there will always be one act which, for the computer, will remain inconceivable. In the privacy of a woman's room, against her will, the inconceivable act, Julie Christie carries the demon seed. Fear for her. I am a mind without a body. I cannot touch you as a man, but my child shall live as man among others. Child? Yes, my child. And yours. MGM presents Julie Christie in Demon Seed. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. Released by United Artists. Julie Christie carries the Demon Seed. Fear for her. That's right. We'll be back next week with another questionable use of technology with our discussion of Demon Seed. Our friend Maitland McDonough will be back next week, and Heather's friend Bill Ackerman will be our guest co-host. So, Heather, what have you been up to lately? Well, Mike, I'm currently working on a book about the work of Stephen Sadian, who has been a guest on The Projection Booth with the Dr. Calgary episode. In addition to that, I'm also uh, writing. I write. I currently write for Dangerous Minds, Art Decades, as well as my own website, Mondo Heather. Marjorie, when we had you on the show, God, that was that was a while ago. I want to say it was about two years ago, and you were doing the Kickstarter for your movie Chemical Cut. And by the time this episode goes out, Chemical Cut will have had its premiere at the Slam Dance Film Festival. So, how did that experience go for you? It was surprisingly smooth. Yeah, I mean, it was a failed Kickstarter project, but it was more of a test for me because I had never done crowdfunding and my producer thought I should try it. But I had set aside the funds before I even launched the campaigns. It was just test out audience interaction and see what that was like. But after we we actually started shooting right after um, in January, right after the end of the campaign. So yeah, it was a it was a pretty long shoot for an indie micro budget feature, um, twenty seven days and. And I edited it myself um, for six months and uh, supervised the sound, which took uh, surprisingly longer. I think in general in life, it's hard to not underestimate the amount of effort something takes. <laughs> you know, I, I tend to think it takes about 40% of the actual effort required um, to make a film or to make a really long project like this. I, I spent four and a half years on it um, now. So I'm, I'm really excited to be able to premiere it at Park City, something that seems 
rather nebulous to me right now. I, I'm, I'm interested in, in seeing it for the first time. Um, and it's definitely a filmmaker community. It's filmmakers picking other filmmakers. So that's, that's wonderful. It was a blind submission. So I don't have any paranoia about, you know, what email actually led to me being picked. You know, it feels more um, earned to be selected by other filmmakers. When you go out there, and I know this is going to be kind of weird because we're we're posting this in the future. As far as right now, when we're recording this, when you go out there, are you just going out there to represent the film? Is there like, a, do you hope? Because um, I I've been to Park City before, but more as a, a judge at the Slam Dance Film Festival than an actual participant. As far as having a film going out there, so are there talks of like, you know, hopefully you're going to meet with distributors and those kind of things, or, or what's your plan as far as going out there? Yes, there there's supposed to be distributors in the room now. You know, of course getting them there and, you know, hiking up the hill. I mean, I'm not sure if it's going to happen, but we're all hoping that they'll be in the room. And, you know, there are definitely friends and cast and crew and um, people at World of Wonder Productions that um, are coming to see the film for the first time. So, you know, obviously the film will play the best around that kind of audience um, and hopefully distributors will be there to witness it. My producer is our sales agent right now and he is contacting a bunch of distributors to attend. Do you want to talk about the film as far as what it is? What do you want to know? <laughs> Give us the elevator pitch. What kind of uh, what type of movie is it? I mean, we've got the trailer over at the site and everything, but just for folks who won't go over to projection-booth.com, can you tell us what Chemical Cut is like? Well, Chemical Cut's a dark comedy, um, and it's also a drama. I tend to think that if you can sum up a film in one sentence, that's not good. <laughs> if you can sum up a film in five contradictory sentences that are all true, that's better. And I'll probably want to watch that film. Hopefully, we'll have a chance to make one like that. Um, and this film is balancing a lot of character-like humor um, and a lot of calm static frames. So at first, these caricatures of the fashion world are very entertaining and you don't really think twice about it. And hopefully as the film continues, uh, you start to gather that there's more ominous quality to this stuff we take for granted about fashion, you know, and ultimately it's not about modeling or just modeling. I think most jobs are terrible, you know, and <laughs> modeling is a job and, uh, you know, other jobs that are, that she engages in are equally, um, unpleasant. So it is more about, uh, the trajectory of someone who doesn't know what they're doing. Now you wrote the movie, you directed the movie and you're starring in the movie. That's a lot to, right. to bite off for a first project. And I produced it and I edited it. Yeah. It, Jeez. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, it was a lot, but I think that's important. You know, I mean, in a way I see it as a, uh, I don't see it as a student project, but one could say that it is kind of like a master's in production education, trying to figure out what each step demands and also going to Park City and figuring out what the conversations are with audiences, with distributors and potential investors for a future project, et cetera, and publicists, press media, all of that stuff is really hard to master. <laughs> and um, it's good to get as much experience in all of those different skills that you're hopefully supposed to understand. I, I think film is kind of a lifelong commitment when you decide you want to make some. 
Well, and it sounds like you have a pretty good um, group of friends, group of, of people who are supporting you with this. So even though it was so much a Marjorie Conrad project, it sounds like you do have that base as far as people who are there for your, you know, your support, your, your other producers, these kind of things. So it's not just going to be you alone when you go to Park City. You know, it was definitely a very devoted, uh, imaginative, family-sized crew and cast, very colorful uh, actors with different flavors of comedy or comedic ability. I'm definitely not an egomaniac. You know, I don't, <laughs> I, I think, you know, there's very, there's a lot of imagination in the room and uh, the best ideas win. Um, but I, I definitely think it's my job to shape it and uh, make sure it's somewhat coherent by the end. But I definitely value other people. I think they have value. The outside world is very rich and has value without me making stuff. Um, but I enjoy making stuff more than necessarily analyzing it. You know, that's what I chose to do with my life. Modeling was also in a way to be able to kind of empathize with people on the other end of the camera um, and to understand the challenges. Because photographers are often uh, not the best at at giving direction. Um, They tend to give a lot of result direction, like be classically beautiful. It's very hard to <laughs> to convey. I mean, you're, it's not conveying emotion. And I think uh, I, I personally like filmmaking that works with making emotion. And I, I tend to collect things that I enjoy that are part of this world that I, I want to inhabit and uh, communicate to others. And less of a person that likes to design a whole aesthetic and, and stares at it from a distance. Um, I, I am very involved with the people that I'm collaborating with. Would it have been easier for you to just digitize your actors and then manipulate them that way? No, I don't think so. I I, I like mistakes. I like accidents. I like uh, I like the organic moment, and I think a lot of it is forgetting what you wrote and being flexible. I think I mean my first short uh, out of college, my thesis short. I, it was um, surprising to me how flexible I needed to be to really get something and how little the blueprint really materializes most of the time. Actually, reading Looker, I was very surprised to see that the script really fit the final product. Well, I did notice that it did say shooting script on it, so that must have been as as close as we could have gotten. Yeah, it seemed amazing. You know, that's amazing intuitive, intuitive director. But yeah, it's probably just a shooting script. And then it's those differences, you know, the, the things that we've highlighted throughout this episode as far as the differences between that script and what we ended up as the final product. I think some of them were misses, but then at the same time, the script was, what, 131 pages long, and there's no way that we're sitting down for a two-hour and ten-minute movie, especially in 1981. I mean, nowadays, it's like law that everything has to be two hours and 20 minutes, but I still prefer like a nice, clean hour and 45, hour and a half kind of movie. And I think he he had to do what he did when it came to the editing stuff. As far as you went, what were there challenges when it came to what you had to keep and what you had to throw away when it came to that edit, that six-month editing process? Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> I mean, I there was a lot of comedic imp- improvisation with my actors. And, yeah, I mean, that's going to result in a lot of long takes and some really wonderful bits that you have to just cut out. And then you understand the tyranny of narrative when you're <laughs> cutting all that. And, I mean, a lot of the aesthetic shots that I spent a lot of time on um, that I – personally prefer in films i i had to kind of cut out to make the story work and i i kind of am against this um saying that 
at the end, all you have is your story. I mean, I prefer that cinema be treated as this medium in 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 itself that has a lot to offer without um, narrative necessarily. Um, yeah, so I was I was jarred by what I had created for myself, the challenges that I had created for myself by allowing so much freedom on set. Uh, but I, in terms of shooting, it's wonderful to have so much freedom on set. It really is. I mean, the actors, uh, their energy level is much higher if you give them freedom. And I'm also, I don't believe that um, I have all the answers. You know, I mean, I think it is an investigation and you're exploring together. So on the eve of going out to Park City, being at Slam Dance, are you freaking out as, as far as like the big question mark that kind of looms post that time? Like, you know, what what's going to happen in February? Do you have any kind of inkling? Well, I submitted to other festivals, so hopefully someone will want me. <laughs> you know, Slam Dance is all over, but, you know, I'm prepared for that not to happen. But, you know, I mean, the process in itself was rewarding. The fact that I could actually see it uh, to the finish was rewarding. Um, I am writing my second feature right now, and um, I think that's what I'm actually really interested in in terms of Slam Dance. Um, seeing all of these like-minded filmmakers with all of these wonderful stories and visuals, et cetera, and um, really kind of gauging what this world that I want to enter in is like. And then maybe that shaping what I do next a little differently. I'm sure I'll have a better idea of what the second script needs to be because I've, I've finished a draft and uh, it's, you know, it's an early draft. Um, and I'm interested in how that'll transform after in February. Uh, once I kind of understand <laughs> the beast a little better. Have you seen the movie with an audience yet? I have only seen it with uh, a cast and crew. And so far, you know, no one walked out, you know, <laughs> no one slapped me. Um, yeah, it was, it was uh, pretty well received and uh, slam dance liked it. it. You know, I'm glad that I did insert a lot of comedy in it. Uh, the, the script in itself at first did not have a lot of comedic elements, but it did leave room for that to happen. And I, I think for a first film, it's it's important uh, to not take yourself too seriously. <laughs> and, not, and it really, you know, because you're a beginning. I mean, you're a child. <laughs> that would be that I haven't watched it with a, an, a completely um, neutral audience yet. Well, the thing that I got out of Slam Dance, and I hope that you get this as well, it feels small in a good way. It feels like you are watching movies with friends, and it feels like everybody is there for the same purpose. I haven't experienced Sundance yet, but I always get the feeling that Sundance is a little more surfacey. But when it comes to Slam Dance, it really felt like we are all here for one purpose, and that purpose is to enjoy movies together. So I hope that you have that same experience that I did when I was out there years ago. You know, I'm so glad that Chemical Cut, you know, made it that you edited it, that we're having this you know, big premiere and everything, and that's fantastic. So I'm, I'm so happy that this is happening for you. Thank you so much. It's an honor to talk about it. Um, yeah, thank you so much for featuring the project before it was even made. Where can folks go to find out more about the movie and kind of keep up on it, especially as you announce other festivals and places that people will be able to see it? Well, of course, you can go to the film's website, chemicalcut.com, and we're on Facebook at Chemical Cut the Film. We're on Twitter at Chemical Cut One and Instagram at Chemical Cut. Um, but the website will have, and the Facebook will have 
up-to-date stuff. Well, thank you again, Marjorie. Thank you, Heather, for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. I want to encourage folks to come on over to our website, projection-booth.com. Leave us some feedback. Link on over to our iTunes page. Leave us a review. And maybe give us some of your hard-earned cash through Patreon. Those are just a few more ways in which we can help take over the airwaves.
Enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.